How does paid sick leave influence cancer screening? And how important is out-of-work physical activity in preventing chronic disease and improving mortality? Should we use a pretty invasive way to treat hypertension? And can we integrate alcohol-related prevention and treatment into our primary care? That's what we're talking about this week on WT Health Watch, your weekly look at the medical headlines from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso. I'm Elizabeth Tracy, a Baltimore-based medical journalist. And I'm Rick Lang, president of Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso, where I'm also dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine. I'd like to start with JAMA. Last week, we talked about ablation of a part of the brain called the globus pallidus to help people with Parkinson's disease improve the tremor that's associated with that condition. This week, we're talking about endovascular ultrasound to denervate this blood vessel that goes into the kidneys to treat people with hypertension or high blood pressure. And to me, this seems like a pretty invasive way to do this. It turns out, of course, that we have lots of people whose hypertension is intractable, that we put them on a bunch of different meds and it still doesn't come down to within guidelines that we think are appropriate and that will help to avoid some of the long-term consequences of having hypertension. In this case, they're looking at efficacy and safety of this ultrasound renal denervation, removing the sympathetic innervation to that particular area in bringing down people's hypertension. They have a bunch of people that they screened for this trial, which I thought was really interesting, over a thousand. Of that number, 150 were randomized to this ultrasound procedure and 74 to a sham procedure. Of this number, about a third of them were female and about 16% self-identified as Black or African-American. This is important, of course, because we see way more intractable hypertension in this population than we do in others. These people were between 18 and 75 years of age. Their systolic blood pressure seated in the office was greater than 140 millimeters of mercury, then their diastolic greater than or equal to 90s. And they were taking up to two antihypertensive meds at the time. They had them take a four-week washout of their medications before they underwent this procedure. And then they had this ablation procedure. What they found was that they were able to achieve a reduction in their daytime ambulatory systolic blood pressure of about almost eight millimeters of mercury versus the sham procedure. And that appeared to be fairly durable. They also had secondary outcomes that were things like if you measured it at home, if you looked at it over 24 hours, and six out of the seven were also significantly improved with this ultrasound procedure. This has been studied before and the results have been fairly inconsistent. So this is one of several trials that have first of all, compared this procedure to a sham procedure because the earlier trials didn't. And we know that sometimes there could be a placebo effect. In fact, in the sham treated group here, their blood pressure went down about two millimeters of mercury versus eight millimeters in the procedure group. So doing properly controlled trials is really important. The other thing this trial did was they took individuals that had modestly elevated blood pressure. They wanted to pick a fairly low risk group that could tolerate hypertension for about three months, did this procedure, and then monitored the blood pressure over the course of the next one to two months. And overall, it looked like it reduced the blood pressure throughout the entire day, by the way, at nighttime, daytime, and even during sleep. So I think the, the results are fairly robust. I'm just wondering, though, why you would choose this. What are the long-term consequences of ablating sympathetic innervation to the kidneys? So they're going to follow these people out to five years. So we want to have an answer for a little while. They did do studies looking at the renal artery to make sure that 
the procedure didn't cause stenosis or blockage of the artery or other consequences. And it looks like it's a pretty safe procedure. Where might it be applicable? Well, for individuals that can't take medications because of side effects, for individuals that have resistant hypertension despite a couple, for people that have trouble with compliance with medications, it's not likely to replace medications altogether, but it is likely to be a supplement we know that people are famously indifferent to taking their antihypertensive meds. Maybe this is going to be one of the things that can be helpful. It just seems like it's a pretty drastic measure to me. If it's a one-time procedure that can render someone's hypertension either easier to control or easier to manage, then it may have a very important place in the control of the millions of individuals that have hypertension. Why don't we turn to the BMJ and take a look at this non-occupational physical activity and risk of cardiovascular disease, cancer, and mortality. And I would note, of course, exercise as a well-known way to help to keep one's blood pressure under control. It's interesting. We've talked before about how important exercise can be in terms of preventing cardiovascular disease, mortality, even cancer mortality. So what these investigators attempted to do was to estimate the dose-response association between non-occupational physical activity, that's physical activity outside of work, and several chronic and disease mortality outcomes in the general adult population. They found over 196 articles or studies that address us, over 30 million participants. So this is the largest study to date. They categorized physical activity based on each of these different studies into a single measure. How many metabolic units or how vigorous was your activity and how many minutes were you involved? And here's what they found out. If you averaged about 150 minutes of low to moderate exercise or even 75 minutes of moderate to high exercise is that you could reduce all-cause mortality by 30%. You reduce cardiovascular disease by about 30%. You reduce mortality from cancer by about 15%. And in fact, they said if all those individuals did 150 minutes per week of moderate to vigorous aerobic physical activity, it would reduce premature deaths by about 16%. And so you really just have to do your exercise in order to maintain your body's health. It just seems so straightforward to me. Yeah. If we had a medication that we said could reduce your chance of dying or heart disease by 30%, prevent premature death, we could probably charge a lot for it. Worth doing it. I'll also note that we've also just recently reported on exercise snacks. And so if you don't have an unrelieved amount of time to devote to exercise, you can get up and just do stairs or get up and do other kinds of things for a short period of time, not break a sweat and still have an impact. Let's turn to the New England Journal of Medicine. This is a special article that's taking a look at cancer screening after the adoption of paid sick leave mandates. They note that at the end of 2022, nearly 20 million workers in the United States gained paid sick leave coverage from mandates that required employers to provide benefits to qualified workers, including paid time off for the use of preventive services. So what they wanted to look at was the association between these paid sick leave mandates and screening for breast and colorectal cancers. And they looked at that by looking at changes in 12 and 24 month rates of screening for those particular conditions between workers residing in what they called metropolitan statistical areas, MSAs, that have been affected by these paid sick leave mandates versus those that were not. They found that there were paid sick leave mandates in 61 of their MSAs. Cancer screening rates were higher among those workers who were 
in those particular areas. They were not huge differences, however. They were just over 2% for 24-month mammography, but other than that, all less than 2% increases in those areas where they were covered. However, the authors conclude that this is an important addition to getting people to get their preventive services, including cancer screening. As the authors point out, we know that cancer screening is particularly important for colorectal cancer and breast cancer, which is what they were looking at, yet less than 70% of individuals actually adhere to the guidelines and have it. But just because of the sheer volume, although the percentage improvement was relatively small, the authors note that over a two-year period, paid sick leave would have resulted in about 300,000 additional people having colorectal cancer screening over a 24-month period, and almost a quarter of a million women would have had breast cancer screening. What that tells me is we actually need to improve cancer screening among all populations. And the populations that are most at risk are those that are underserved, low-income populations. These are the ones that not only are least likely to be screened, but also the ones in whom paid sick leave can actually make the biggest difference. Right, and who are also most unlikely to have it. And they note in this article that nearly 30% of our nation's workforce lacks paid sick leave coverage. Yeah. And in fact, I was unaware that we're one of only two developed countries that doesn't have paid sick leave. Within the U.S., there are about 17 different states, four counties, 18 cities that mandate paid sick leave. Then there are 18 states that actually prevent municipalities from doing that. It also occurs to me, of course, that if we take a look at even costs to the healthcare system, the benefits of early detection that we achieve by screening are clearly less expensive to the system than having somebody present with a fulminant cancer. Absolutely. We're saving costs as well as saving lives. Let's go to your last one, and that talk about saving lives looks at can we integrate alcohol-related prevention and treatment into primary care? That's in JAMA Internal Medicine. About 20 to 25% of U.S. adults drink alcohol at an unhealthy level, and about 14% have an alcohol use disorder where it actually impairs their daily activity. Since most individuals will see a primary care physician, it makes sense that we could potentially screen for this, and if screen shows positive, we, we can introduce brief interventions at the physician's office that have been shown to be effective. And then importantly, for those that have the most severe alcohol use disorders, refer them for more serious treatment. These investigators assess the ability to do that. This is done at 22 primary care practices in an integrated health system in Washington state over a three-year period. When they looked at almost 335,000 patients who visited their primary care physician, the number of individuals that were screened went up substantially from about 20% to about 83%. Those that were introduced to brief intervention also increased substantially, about four to five fold. But then when they looked at treatment initiation for those that had the worst alcohol use disorder, surprisingly, it really didn't have any benefit at all. A very intensive attempt to increase screening, addressing this in the doctor's office, which they did, but in terms of long-term treatment, it really wasn't very successful. Of course, this is just such a thorny problem and also one that's so incredibly common. The strategy of trying to intervene in a primary care setting where people are already going there for other issues just makes a lot of sense to me. How would you change it so that it would actually have an impact on people who have the most severe problems? 
Well, that's a great question. How do you get individuals plugged in and having effective treatment for the most severe alcohol use disorders? One of the things the study doesn't show is it doesn't show where we fall down there. Were people referred and didn't go? Do they go and not continue? We know that there are some medications that can be very helpful and were medications prescribed. I think taking this study to show how we might more beneficially treat those with the most severe alcohol use disorders is probably the next step. On that note, then, that's a look at this week's medical headlines from Texas Tech. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lyon. Y'all listen up and make healthy choices.